You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Father, we pause this morning and we say thank you for your goodness and your grace. If all we want to pray for those along the coastline in Florida and those inland that have lost everything this morning. Father, we pray for the families that are still missing loved ones. We pray for the families, Lord, that have got the worst news ever, that, that their loved ones didn't survive the storm. Father, we pray for those that are rushing to Florida. We pray for North Carolina Baptist Missions and other ministries such as Samaritan's Purse and so many others that uh, are already set up. Lord, we know what an impact that makes. We know what a blessing that is. We know, Father, firsthand what it's like to be able to get a hot meal, to be able to take a shower, to be able to wash your clothes when, Lord, they've lost everything. So, Father, we pray for those teams. We pray for the EMS, law enforcement, state patrol, government officials, Father, who are slowly beginning to assess and then come up with plans to be able to address the basic needs of the people in that community. Father, we pray for your intervention. We pray for your healing. We pray for your protection, and we pray for your safety. Father, we are grateful for your love and kindness and mercy towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died in our place. And Father, as these teams go, I know, Father, that for many of them, the first and foremost thing is going to be the gospel, the good news. For every plate of food that's given, for every house that has began to be remodeled and, and torn down and fixed, that the teams who go out, who represent you, Father, everything that they're doing, they're doing as a, as a show of love because of the love that they've experienced through your grace. So, Father, may your mission the mission of reaching people for eternity. May that be the primary message. All that we have is temporary. Solomon said it's like a vapor. It's here and then it's gone for a little while. We know, Father, that our life is short. And Father, when we see such devastation as this, Lord, may it remind us not only of how small we are, but how big you are, that we would worship you in that moment. We ask it in Christ's name as we walk through this text this morning. Give us direction and guidance. We thank you for all that you do in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Much of the month of September was kind of focused on one person's death. And, of course, you know who that was. It was Queen Elizabeth, longest reigning monarch, and led with, well, with just great intelligence, great leadership ability, and I don't know if you watched any of the services that were connected with that, but it was incredible that this moment in history that we were able to see that and be part of that. But there was another person who died in September that's probably a whole lot less known. But equally, a life that had an incredible impact for the mission of God. His name, is, his real name is Andrew Vanderbilt. She's a Dutch missionary He's better known as Brother Andrew. Brother Andrew um, had a mission on his life, a calling upon his life that, that was really influenced by Revelation chapter 2, or chapter 3, verse 2, where it talks about wake up and strengthen what remains. That verse impacted Andrew to such a degree that he felt the call to go to the mission field. But specifically, he felt called to take Bibles into lands and into countries that were communist and closed, very dangerous places on earth. And there was a book written about Andrew in, the, in 1964. The name of the book is, is God Smuggler. And it's about his life and his, his ministry in taking Bibles into communist land. Folks, i got to have some water or I'm not going to make it, so give me just a moment. He would be the one who would cross over into Soviet Union and take Bibles, New Testaments, knowing that if he got caught, knowing that if um, he was found out that 
He would be punished, thrown in jail, maybe even killed on the spot. He had a little 1964 blue Volkswagen Beetle bug, and he would pack the, the doors in behind the, the door coverings, behind the vinyl. He would pack the doors full of Bibles, and he would hide them in special compartments inside this car, and, and he would switch up his routine, and he would maybe go to one checkpoint that was not very heavily guarded, and he would get through there, and then maybe at other times he would have other people join him to get these Bibles into the Soviet Union. And then there would be times in his life where he would expand into other countries, very dangerous places to be found with a copy of the New Testament. Each time he would cross the border, there would be a prayer that he would pray. And it's in the book, God Smuggler, and this is what he says. He says, he would pray this to the Lord. Lord, in my luggage, I have scripture that I want to take to your children across this border. When you were on earth, you made blind eyes to see. Now I pray, make seeing eyes blind. Do not let the guards see those things you do not want them to see. There are stories of when he would cross the border and he would get inspected and they would actually find maybe a compartment with Bibles in it and he would think in that moment that he's going to be arrested and that he's going to be thrown in jail only for that guard to simply let him go through even though they'd seen the Bibles. It was almost as if in that moment that God had blinded the eyes of these people and they couldn't even see what was right in front of their eyes. Brother Andrew gave his entire life for the gospel, for the mission for getting people to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Later in his life, he would shift his focus over to helping missions organizations that were sending missionaries into countries that were dominated by Islam. As a matter of fact, Brother Andrew is the only, and there was probably more, but he was one of the only people that I read about after 9-11, when our country was then engaged in the war on terrorism, the war against terrorism, and Brother Andrew came out, and I remember reading one of his articles, and he was one of the only people that I read that said we should be praying for Osama bin Laden. I mean, everywhere else you heard is we need to destroy him, we need to take him out, and and certainly, certainly that's what ended up happening. But this man came out and said not only do we need to be praying that he would meet the King of kings and Lord of lords and surrender his life to Christ, but that we should be praying for all of those called in Islam. His argument was is that the reason we were having to fight a battle against terrorism is because we had failed as missionaries. Pretty strong argument, isn't it? Now, whether you agree or disagree with it, you have to be confronted with the reality that what, that what Brother Andrew was doing, the calling that was upon his life, this man was willing to do hard things. He was willing to go to the ends of the earth. He was willing to talk about a Jesus that changed his life. Interestingly, during this same time where he was taking Bibles into foreign lands, there would be missions organizations that would speak against Brother Andrew for the way he was doing it. They would say it was too dangerous. They would say it was putting people at risk. They would say, is it really even having an impact in those countries? He's simply giving out Bibles. What impact is that actually having? And it may be that when we read a story like Brother Andrew We tend to look at his faith and we tend to look at what he's doing and we think, man, that guy's crazy. I mean, he's insane. Knowing what was at risk, knowing that he could lose his life, yet he was doing it anyway. But here's a question I want to pose to you this morning as we look at the church at Sardis. When we look at a man like Andrew and other people that we know in our life who are living out a radical faith and we look at him, we we, we think, "Is, is that authentic Christianity? Could it be that that what Brother Andrew was living out and what others are living out in a radical faith, maybe that's authentic Christianity. And and maybe the reason we're thinking they're crazy is because it's so different than what we're living out. And could it be that the faith that we have in Jesus, the faith that we have, is maybe so different than what we see in a man like Andrew and others that we begin to contrast the two and go, wait a minute, is, it, is, there, is there two different Christian faiths? Is there two different walks with Jesus? Or is that what authentic Christianity looks like? Someone who's willing to take a risk. Someone who has a driving passion that other people may know what they found out to be true. 
there's a lot of commonality between these churches that we've been looking at. We, we see common problems. We see false teaching creeping in. We see leaders that come into the church like last week in Thyatira. This woman that is symbolized as Jezebel who's in the church misleading the church. We see in Smyrna where that church was standing firm even in the midst of strong persecution. We saw Pergamum when Pastor Bobby preached. Pergamum where in that very region you have the power of Satan in that city Yet, those people had not denied the faith. I think the best contrast between these churches as far as Sardis, I think Pergamum would be the one to contrast with Sardis. You see, Sardis, there were people there who had proclaimed the name of Jesus, yet they had given up on their primary calling. Unlike Andrew, who spent his whole life and died at the age of 94, still professing the name of Jesus, we have a, day, a church in Sardis that started out well, but over time had given up on their primary mission and their primary calling. Brother Andrew was asked one time in an interview, so what, what is it about you that makes you so, so have such influence and such power? In other words, this person that was interviewing was putting Andrew on a pedestal, and Andrew was really quick to address that. He says, look, I don't want to have any spotlight on me. He said, what I am doing, any Christian should be doing and can do. It's not like he got some extra dose of the Holy Spirit or religion. It's not as though he somehow got something different than what you and I have as people who follow Jesus. Our calling and our mission is exactly the same. Sardis, this church, will not be really commended for anything. Jesus is not going to pat them on the back for anything because, quite frankly, they are self-deceived. Now, there are some people in this church that are remaining faithful, but it's a remnant, only a few. And Jesus is going to point out what the real problem is. So let's take a look at verse 1, chapter 3, and let's look at what Jesus is going to reveal about this church. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write these words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. If we go back to chapter 1, when John had that vision of Jesus, we saw all of those different elements in that vision that John had. And each of those elements have been included in each of these seven letters. Now we are in Asia Minor. We have moved up the coastline, moving north in each of these cities with each of these churches. We have turned back to the southeast, <clears throat> and we are now walking back through the middle of Asia Minor. Sardis was a unique area. And this church, not only was this church unique in the problem that it had, but the city that it was in was very unique as well. And Jesus says to them, I have the seven spirits of God, and I know about the seven stars. We talked about how that the seven spirits probably represents the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The seven stars represents the angels that have been assigned to these particular churches. And what Jesus is saying here is like he said in the other letters we've looked at, he is fully aware of what's happening in the church at Sardis. The angels are reporting to him, the Holy Spirit is reporting to him, and there is nothing hidden in this church. So what Jesus is going to say to them is like he said to the other churches, I know your true heart. There's nothing hidden. You can do really well at hiding who you really are from the people around you. But the reality is, is you're not hiding anything from Jesus. And every time we've looked at these letters, we realize the intimate knowledge that Jesus has about the very condition of the hearts of the people in the church. So he says, I know your works. Nothing is hidden. I know who you really are. He says, you have a reputation of being alive. So what is a reputation? A reputation is what others are saying about you. What they've done is they've observed your life. Maybe they've, they've seen some things in your life, and maybe you've told them some things about who you are, and, and they've, they've talked about who you are, so you have a, a reputation. Uh, when you got up this morning to come to church, maybe your neighbor's still hooking his generator up. And he sees you get out, and he sees you get in the car, and maybe your neighbor is far from Jesus. Maybe they have no relationship with Christ or the church, and they see you get in the car and go, oh, okay, they're going to church again. So they, they make some assumptions about who you are. You have a, a reputation. If you invite me over to your house, and let's say you're going to have a family reunion, and you're going to invite all your family, or you're going to invite my family over, when I get to your house, I'm not going to walk into your house and announce to everyone that I'm a pastor. 
That may surprise you. I don't do that. You know why I don't do that? Because people, it gets really awkward when I do. And look, I'm just an average guy. God's called me to this ministry, and, and I love what I do. But in the world in which we live, when I throw that title out, everything in the room changes. So people are going to have to pry that out of me. It's not that I'm going to lie about it. Certainly I wouldn't do that. But I'm not just going to throw that out there. So you know how it happens when you get in a dinner party, right? Everybody begins to talk about, oh, what do you do for a living? Oh, I do this. Oh, I work at this plant. Or I work for the school system. And eventually it comes around to me, and hey, what do you do? And I go, well, I, you know, I, I pastor a church. And at that very moment, there are assumptions that are made at that very moment. Oh, oh, he's religious. He's got religion. And I hear that a lot more now than, than what I used to. You know, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, if you threw out the title pastor, it was kind of more embraced. But now it's like, oh, he's one of those people. Reputation. And so then I, I try to follow up with that. And they'll go, well, you know, maybe they'll ask the question, well, how did you, how did you end up doing that? That's a little crazy, isn't it? And my only response is, well, I love Jesus. Jesus changed my life. And I'm going to spend the rest of my life telling people about what he's done and how he can change your life. Reputation. The thing about reputation is, is it can be just that, a reputation with no reality. Notice what Jesus says. He says, I know you have a reputation of being alive. He says, but you are dead. Here's the, here's the thing. You can have a reputation, but it not be rooted in reality. You can be living a dual life. You can have one aspect of your life that looks one way, but have a whole other aspect of your life that looks totally the opposite. And those two can contradict. Uh, just imagine for a moment this church in Sardis, this city. They've heard that a letter is coming from John and that John had received a message from Jesus. And imagine that this church gathers and that the elder or the pastor of the church is going to read the letter from John, who's on the Isle of Patmos, who had had a vision from Jesus, and that Jesus had something he wanted to say to your church specifically. So imagine just maybe in a setting like this, or maybe in a house, or, or maybe in a courtyard, the church gathers and they're excited because you see they've been patting themselves on the back thinking, wow, we have a great reputation. We are known as being a church that is alive, and we can't wait for Jesus to pat us on the back. Because certainly, our reputation precedes us, right? You can imagine the, the elder of the church reading the letter and he gets to this part, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive. I don't know if he might have paused in that moment. Everybody starts patting each other on the back. And then he says, however, Jesus says that he knows your true state. He knows the reality. And the reality is you are spiritually dead. That had to have shocked them to the core. Because, see, reputation can only take you so far until you're going to be confronted with reality. The reality, reality for this church is that they were spiritually dead. They had the facade of life. They had, they had maybe a great worship team. Maybe they had a great welcome team. Maybe they had a, a beautiful campus. And, of course, you know I'm being a little bit facetious here. But the point being is they looked at themselves and they determined that they were alive. And that's what everybody was talking about. But Jesus says, I pull back the veil. I look at your heart, and what I see in your heart is nothing but spiritual death. What more contrast could you have? Life and death. But Jesus goes on, he says, verse 2, he says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So notice how Jesus is describing the reality of this church. You have a reputation, but it's not based in reality. He says, you have, you have fallen asleep. You've fallen asleep at your duty, your mission, the work I've given you. You have fallen asleep. And not only that, you've become weak. You're about to die, and your works are incomplete. We need to kind of wrestle with the setting of Sardis to be able to understand what Jesus is saying here. Because what Jesus does is he uses a little bit of their historical setting where the city is to get a point across. The city of Sardis was very much different than the other cities we've looked at. 
The city of Sardis was set on a, on a precipice, on a, on a 2,000-foot elevated mound, mountain of stone and cliffs and rocks. And when this city was founded, it was founded upon the idea that if we could put a city on this mount, then it would be almost impenetrable. That we could have safety kind of built into this city. The way the city was situated on this mount was there was really only one good entrance coming into the city. The backside of the city was nothing but sheer cliffs. So the idea was is that the only way you could get access to the city if you wanted to conquer that city is to come through the main entrance. Well, of course, the soldiers of the city kept an eye on that front gate. It was heavily fortified. But the city had become so confident that it could never be attacked from the rear that it never posted any guards up there at all. They didn't even have to worry about it because no one would be foolish enough to try to scale a 2,000-foot cliff to try to attack from the back. And even if they did, they would only be able to send one or two soldiers and what real threat is that? So Jesus says to the church, he says, wake up. Strengthen what remains. It has kind of a military sound to it. You better shore up your defenses. You better pay attention to where your weaknesses are. You better wake up and pay attention to the fact that you are spiritually dead. You're not alive at all. Well, one time, actually two times, for the city of Sardis, the city was conquered. And it happened the same time, the same way both times. The first time, there was this one particular military army that wanted to take the city of Sardis. But they had the same problem that everyone else had tried, that there was no good way to get into the city, and they knew they couldn't fight them head on at the gate. So what did they do? They put up a battalion at the base of the cliffs just to observe for a while. Well, the story goes that one day this battalion is at the base of the rock cliffs on the backside of the city, and they see one of the soldiers up at the top of the cliff, and he drops his helmet. And the helmet falls off the side of the cliff, but it doesn't fall all the way to the bottom. And then they notice that the soldier is able to walk down the edge of this cliff and get his helmet back. <coughs> now, as this battalion is watching this, they'd never seen this before. They realized that when you look at the cliff just right, you could see a crack, a ledge that ran all the way down the side of the mountain, all the way to the base that they had never seen before and would have never seen if this one particular soldier at the top hadn't walked down it for a distance to retrieve his helmet. All of a sudden, they realize there is a back entrance to the city of Sardis that no one knows about. So this battalion, in the middle of the night, comes up with a battle plan. They put one battalion at the front gate to act like they're going to attack. And that gets all the attention what? On the front gate. While the other battalion come up the cliff, come along the ledge, come over into the city, and the city falls within two hours. Jesus says to the church living in that city, you have an area in your ministry that you don't even have an eye on, that's unguarded, that is weak. And see, so you've gotten satisfied with having a reputation of being on fire for God when in fact, the very thing that I've given you to do, you have abandoned. He says, you need to strengthen what remains and it's about to die for I have not found your works complete. In other words, You've been focused on one thing, and while you've been focused on one thing, you have become completely, utterly spiritually dead. I think this is a, a tremendous testimony or tremendous image of the American church as it stands today. We have a lot of pomp and circumstance. We have a lot of flashy lights. We have a lot of things going on in a lot of churches. But when you pull the veil back, you have to ask the question, is this all facade? Is it real? Or is it just something that we're doing to go through the motions? Everything in America right now points to the reality that the American church, the Christian church, the evangelical church has forsaken its primary role. How do I know that? Because our country is the most lost it's ever been, ever in the history of this country. Right now, Robinson County is the lost, is, is most lost it has ever been. 70% of this county has no faith affiliation whatsoever. And that has grown some 30% in the last 10 years. The people, the street that you live on, I don't care what street it is, I don't care where you live, even if you live out in the country, if there are four or five houses nearby you, more than likely, two out, three out of those two homes, or three out of those five homes 
are people who have no relationship with Jesus. You don't have to walk on any, any direction on your street, pick any house on your street, more than likely you're going to come in contact with people who have no faith in anything. The growing number of people in our country is what's called the nuns, not the N-U-N-S, the N-O-N-E-S. They simply say, I have no religious affiliation whatsoever. The younger you get, the 20s and somethings, 20s and 30s, they're driving by this church this morning. They could care less what's going on here. They don't care. Has no impact on them whatsoever. Has no connection to their life whatsoever. And, and for some of you here this morning, you're here this morning maybe because somebody talked you into coming, and, and you're one of those people. You're one of those young people who say, I have nothing to do with this. I'm just here because I was made to come. The church at Sardis had completely given up on their primary mission of telling other people about Jesus. Notice what Jesus says here, and this gives us more insight into what's happening in this church. Verse 3, he says, Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. So Jesus says you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. He says you are asleep, you're not awake. He says you've become weak where you should be strong. He says your works are incomplete. And now he says you have forgotten some things. You have forgotten where I've brought you from. You've forgotten the work that I've given you to do. You've forgotten that the grace you received was meant to be given to someone else. Every person in this room and every person that is watching online that has put their faith in Jesus, the gospel came to you from someone else. Maybe it was your vacation Bible school teacher. Uh, maybe it was your brother, your sister, your parents, or maybe it was a coworker who first told you about Jesus. It, was, it came to you from someone else, but it was never meant to stay with you. Jesus says, remember, to this church at Sardis, remember what you received. Remember the mission you've been given. What is the mission of the church? The mission of the church is not to have the best worship team. The mission of the church is not simply to gather in buildings. The mission of the church is not simply to hear a guy like me fanatically yell at you for 30, 40 minutes. The purpose of the church is to go out into a lost world, love people, point them to Jesus, and say, look, I have found life, and I have found purpose, and I have found love, and I have found freedom from my addictions, and I have found freedom from my past, and you can too. And it's none other than the man of Jesus Christ. Yes, the guy you know about with Christmas. Yes, the guy you've heard that has something to do with Easter. Yes, it's that guy who can change your life. It's that guy who came to give you life. It's none other than the Great Commission. Go into the world. Make disciples who make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things that I command to you. And lo, I will be with you in that mission. That is the mission of the church. That is the mission mandate of every single believer. You see, Brother Andrew was not the crazy one. Brother Andrew was the one who had it right. That is authentic Christianity. What's happening in Sardis is anything but authentic. It's fake. It's, it's a nice window dressing, but nothing more. What else is going on in this church? Why did they, why did they abandon their mission? I'll tell you why they abandoned their mission. We, we know that in Sardis, in archaeological digs in this particular area, that there was a very large synagogue there. There would maybe even seat some 1,000, 2,000 people. So there was a large Jewish presence in Sardis. And we know from our Roman history that the Romans had accepted or at least allowed Judaism to continue to be practiced in the Roman Empire. That the Romans had made, well, allowances for the faith of Judaism. Now that doesn't mean that, that the Jews were free to do whatever they wanted to do. They were still under the Roman emperor. But... They could practice their faith. They could worship in their synagogues and temple. And as long as they didn't align with Christianity, which had been determined to be an enemy of the state, then everything was fine. So if you go to the synagogue, you know what you would find in the synagogue? You'd, have, you'd find a list of names there. There was a book in the synagogue that had all the names of the people who were practicing Judaism in that particular town of Sardis. Now, if you flip through the book, you might find some names that have been blotted out. Who were they? 
Well, the ones who have been blotted out were the ones who said, you know what? I believe that Jesus is Messiah, and I'm going to follow him. So I'm no longer going to be associated with the synagogue. I'm no longer going to be associated with Judaism. I am now a follower of Jesus, and they blot their names out. And with that, like we've seen in these other churches, with that brought persecution, with that brought pain, with that brought the, ability, the, the hardships of being able to, to buy and sell and support your family in Sardis, because remember, if you're Christian, you're, you're the enemy. But see, it would be really easy, it would be really easy and really inviting that if I could keep my name on the synagogue roll, but yet on the other hand, just kind of attend my church. See, I can have it both ways. See, I can have, I can have peace with the Romans because my name is still listed at the synagogue, but I can, I can go give lip service to my faith in Jesus at that house church down the street. Jesus has a word for that. It's called dead faith. The purpose of this was to live a life of peace. The, the idea was is that if I, can, if I can just be at peace with the Romans, then I can function, but then I can still have my religiosity. And that's exactly what this church did. Many in this church did that. We would say they sold out. We would say that they were trying their very best to have it both ways. They knew the cost of following Jesus openly, and when they counted those costs, they said it's not worth it. So what I'm going to try to do is try to have it both ways. Folks, that's not so far and after all, is it? I don't think that's something relegated to Sardis. You know why? Because I tried to do the same exact thing early in my faith. In my 20-somethings, I counted the cost. I came to faith in Christ when I was 16, and there was a period of time where I lived that out. But then when I got in my 20s, I got to hanging around with a whole new group of guys. And those guys were living a different lifestyle. Those guys were doing things that I had never participated in before. And when I counted the cost of either taking a stand for Jesus or doing what they were doing, you know what I did? I came to the conclusion, I'm not going to abandon the church, but I'm just going to walk away from it just a little bit so that I won't be ostracized from these guys. So then Monday through Saturday, Monday through Sunday morning, I could live how I wanted to live. And then I could roll up in that church on Sunday morning and I could put the mask on and I could have my reputation. But I was cold and dead on the inside. And I dare say some of you are trying that same exact path. Sardis had gotten really good at it. Sardis was not willing to pay the price of naming the name of Jesus. So what did they do? They abandoned their witness because the last thing you're going to want to do is tell anybody about Jesus if that's going to put you on the wrong side of the Roman government. The last thing you're going to do is tell your friend about the life you found in Christ if that friend is then going to go report you to the synagogue and you lose it all. Their pursuit of peace and comfort was greater than their pursuit of Jesus himself. Notice what Jesus says here. He says, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Jesus says, I'm going to come and I'm going to pull the veil back on and I'm going to show who you really are. You know, the person who lives on reputation alone, the last thing you ever want to have is that your reputation is revealed for what it really is. I mean, right? If you're living in this, in this world where you're wearing the mask and you're hiding behind the mask, the last thing you ever want to have happen is the mask to come off. You don't want the world to see who you really are. I mean, your, your life is connected by, by keeping up appearance. You don't want to be revealed. Jesus says, unless they wake up, he says, I'm going to come like a thief. You'll not know when I come, and I'm going to come against you. I'm going to reveal you of who you really are, that you're not alive, you're dead, that you're not on fire. Your fire's been quenched. Jesus says, yet there are a few people in Sardis who have not sold their garments. There was a few people, and I found this to be true, in churches that have, have went off the path, have turned against God's word, turned against the gospel, have become cold and indifferent. What I have found over and over again, and even in those dying churches, there are a few people inside those churches that still know what the truth is, still are, are following Jesus with everything in them, and have not given up. Thank God for those people. He says there's a few people that are following me. Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, 
He's calling some disciples to follow him. He's calling Peter and John and James to follow him. And this is what he says. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Right in that one statement, at the very moment he asked those men to follow him, he includes in that statement, if you're going to follow me, it's going to require that you fish for other people. In other words, in Jesus' mind, all through the Gospels and in the Great Commission, the idea of following Jesus must coincide with the idea of telling other people about Jesus. And if you're not telling other people about Jesus and how you live and what you're doing in Great Commission work, then you are not following Jesus. Is it really that straightforward? Well, yeah, it is. Notice what else Jesus says to this church. Um, he says, for those who've not soiled their garments, in other words, those who've not sold out, those who've not um, tried to have it both ways, they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. Jesus is not making some kind of works righteousness statement here. He's not saying, well, y'all are such good people. Y'all have endured so well that I'm, I'm going to invite you into the kingdom. I'm going I'm to invite you in. No, you see, the reality is they are followers of Jesus evidenced by the fact that they haven't given up. Steadfastness, endurance are indications that you've had a heart change. Engagement in what Christ has called you to do and gifted you to do is the evidence of a changed life. Jesus says to the church, he says, you're going to walk with me for you are worthy. Not because they were good people, they're worthy because of what has happened and what Jesus has done in their life by making them whole. Verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Now that phrase has really freaks some people out. They read that phrase and go, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean that Jesus could possibly blot my name out of the book of life? So they look at this and they see it from the negative standpoint, and oftentimes when this comes up, it's people who are struggling with their security in Christ, and they go, well, right there, if, if Jesus won't do it, it means that he could, and so therefore, can I lose my salvation? That is not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying to this church that when you get your name blotted out of the synagogue, when you finally take a stand as evidence of true faith in your life, and you say, I'm no longer going to take the path of comfort or the path of peace. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm all in, and I'm going to talk about him. And they blot your name out of the book of life. You make sure you understand that nothing you ever face in this life, even if you get threatened, as Brother Andrew did many, many times, even though people hate you for the cause of Christ, I will never, ever leave you. He says that in the Great Commission. I will be with you, even to the end of the age when you stand before me. In other words, this is a promise that what you have in Christ is secure and real and eternal. He says to this church, he says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Paul said that, and Jesus said, Paul said in Romans chapter 1, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Jesus said, if you'll be ashamed of him, he'll be ashamed of you. Can it be in that moment when we are challenged in our faith, can it be in that moment that when we choose to appease rather than to stand for Christ, it's because deep down, and Lord, we would never say this out loud, would we? Would we ever say this out loud? Probably not. This is what we hide behind the mask. This is what we hide behind the reputation. But truly, deep down in the core of our being, we have some shame about the name of Jesus. And that shame is there because of what our community says, what our world says about Jesus. And what, we've, what was happening is instead of, instead of learning from Jesus and walking with Jesus and and learning about him and loving him, we listen to what the world says, this Jesus is something to be ashamed of, that, that the gospel is something to be ashamed of, that the narrowness of the gospel, that there's only one way, that that is something that we are to be ashamed of. Friends, can I just say that God was not ashamed when he pursued after you. He was not ashamed of the rebellion you were in. He was not ashamed of the sin you were in. He loved you in the middle of that mess, and he pulled you out of it. How dare us ever be ashamed of the Christ who gave us life? You have nothing to be ashamed of. Just a few things to consider. 
First of all, the church that relies on reputation rather than reality will soon disappear. The church that relies on reputation alone with no reality behind it will soon disappear. What do I mean by disappear? Does that mean the church doors are closed? Well, maybe. Or it could be that a church that lives on reputation is still able to gather a large crowd of people, yet it'd be completely dead and lifeless on the inside. To me, that's even worse. To, to be part of a show that has no meaning, to go through the motions that have no impact, to talk about big things and grand plans, but never talk to anybody about the, about the gospel and the good news. The world is filled with bad news. You know what the gospel is? The good news. The church that relies on reputation rather than reality will soon disappear. Not only does that count for the church at large, it also counts for you as an individual. I think it would be very good for you to take an inventory of where you stand with Christ. I think we need to do that. You need to know where you stand. And if all you are relying on is a Sunday morning appearance once a week with no other substance, if that's what you're relying on, let me take you to Matthew chapter 7. You don't have to turn over there. It's one of the scariest texts in the entire Bible, in my opinion. It's one of the scariest. It's got to be top three. Because in that moment, Jesus is pulling a veil back, and he says there's going to be a moment that there's going to be people standing before him after they have passed away. And they're going to be standing before him, and they're going to be giving Jesus their resume. And on that resume, they got all the bullet points that are going to be saying to Jesus, hey, Jesus did not prophesy in your name. Hey, Jesus did not preach in your name. Hey, Jesus did not do all these things. In other words, they're giving Jesus their reputation. But as we have already learned, Jesus sees the heart, and in that moment, nothing is hidden, just like it's not hidden now. And Jesus looks at them and says, wait a minute, who are you? Depart from me, you worker of iniquity and rebellion. I never do you. And folks, all the way up into that moment, that person thought that their reputation was enough. They thought it was going to be okay. That their resume, their works, was going to be enough to, to get them crossed over into the eternity and kingdom and the kingdom of God, only to find out that they had failed and that they were spiritually dead. Second thing. The church that embraces this God-given mission will thrive. The church that embraces, understands what its mission is, will thrive, will accomplish what God has called it to accomplish. It will be awake. It, its works will be complete. It, it, will, it, will be, it will be an authentic witness in a lost and dying world. It will look a lot more like Brother Andrew. It will not seek peace with the world. It will not sacrifice its doctrine or its teaching for the whims and the doctrines of the world. The, the church that knows its mission and is focused on what it's called to do will not take the bait from the world to go down an opposite path. The church that embraces its God-given mission will thrive. This church will be awake. It will know why it exists and what God expects it to accomplish. You may have asked yourself, you may have asked me, you may have asked one of our earlier, why in the world are we doing this pray and go? What's the point of that? And I appreciate the honesty. I'm, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you what the point of that is. The point of pray and go, the reason that we are out in our community taking street by street to pray for people is because, number one, we believe that God is at work in our community. Number two, we believe the Great Commission. The Great Commission says what? Go. Here's a, here's a fact check for you. If this community is predominantly lost, and it is, then why are our buildings not full this morning? I'll tell you why. They don't care. And not only do they not care, they think that we are a bunch of hate-filled people. They think that we are a bunch of bigots. They think that we're a bunch of racists. They think we're a bunch of uh, just proud, arrogant people. And why do they believe that? Because that's what their, their social media is telling them. So unless you invite somebody to come with you, they're not coming. So I want us all to be on the same page this morning. The reality is the days of which you put out a sign and say, welcome to our church, 
There used to be a time where people would just come because they trusted the local church. I hate to tell you this, but those days are gone. So we have to go out there. And while we've been going out there, we have connected with people who probably have never had anybody come up to them and say, can I pray for you? We've had multiple gospel conversations with people about Jesus. And folks, not a single one, not very few of those people, if any of them, was just going to show up here and let me go see what that place is about. So the reason we're going out there and the reason we invite you to go with us is because, quite frankly, folks, this is about as low buy-in as I can offer you. Simply show up, go out, walk with us, and pray for people, and then let God take the lead and bring us into the paths of people that he's working on already. It just doesn't get any simpler than that. The church that embraces this God-given mission will thrive. And then finally, the church that is faithful seeks peace with God rather than the world. A faithful church is more concerned with what God thinks than what the world thinks. A church that is faithful is more concerned about what God has said versus what the world is saying. The church that is faithful to the kingdom, the church that is awake, the church that is doing complete works, that church is more concerned about peace with God than peace with the world. I read this out of a, a book that was written in 1950. It's a book by a guy by the name of Chad Walsh, Early Christians of the 21st Century. I know that's probably high on your reading list this morning, if you can even find the book. I want to give you a quote out of this book. Now remember, this was written in 1950. He says, quote, millions of Christians, millions of Christians live in a sentimental haze of vague piety. Let me break that down. You would only hear a sentence like that from 1950, right? It's pretty deep. He says that for most Christians in his day in 1950, most of them are living in this haze of, of religiosity, they are satisfied with vague piety. In other words, there's some things in their life that they seem to value, but they're really vague. They don't even know really what they believe, but they're satisfied with just, well, a reputation of being religious. He says, millions of Christians live in a sentimental haze of vague piety with soft organ music trembling in the lovely light from the stained glass windows. Their religion is a pleasant thing, of emotional quiver, divorced from intellect, divorced from the will, and demanding little except lip service to a few harmless platitudes. Man, that hit me like a two before. Here's what he's saying. He's saying we've gotten satisfied with something that's not even remotely close to authentic Christianity. We've gotten used to our nice buildings and our worship teams and our in our, in our nice spaces to gather in, and, and we've gotten accustomed to the glass, the stained glass windows and what we feel when we come to church, and those things aren't necessarily bad, but what we've done is we've taken that and we've put it front and center, and that's the only thing we're about, and that way when we leave this place, we can turn it off like a light switch and on Monday morning live any way we want to live. Pious platitudes that really have no meaning whatsoever. A compartmentalized life that says, I can, as long as I do my thing on Sunday, I don't have to worry about Monday through Saturday. Listen to this next quote. He says, I suspect that Satan has called off his attempt to convert people to agnosticism. Now, agnosticism is kind of like a branch of atheism. They, they kind of believe in God, but it doesn't really matter. So it's just a big term that says people who don't believe, Right? In other words, he's saying that Satan's kind of called off his attempts to convert people to unbelief. Instead, here's what he's doing. He says, after all, if a person travels far enough away from Christianity, he or she is always in the danger of seeing it in perspective and deciding that it is true. But here's Satan's tactic now. It has been for a long time. It is much safer from Satan's point of view to vaccinate a person with a mild case of Christianity. And there it is, folks, a mild case. A mild case meaning I'll engage maybe once a week. A mild case, which means I'll show up at Christmas and Easter. A mild case that says I'll pray when something goes wrong. A mild case of Christianity that says I'm okay with the music, but I'm not going to bring it up at work. 
A mild case of Christianity that simply says, I've been inoculated, vaccinated with just a mild case that doesn't cause me to be too fanatical. And then he says this, he says to vaccinate a person with a mild case of Christianity so as to protect him from the real disease. You know what the real disease is? Brother Andrew. That's what authentic Christianity looks like. Faithfulness. Willing to take a risk. Willing to bring Jesus up in a conversation. Willing to hand a word of God to somebody else that doesn't have one. Willing to come out with us and go out walking our streets and pray for people that you've never met. That's what authentic Christianity looks like. Maybe, maybe you have been vaccinated with something else. And maybe you've been satisfied with that for a long time, but deep down you're really not because it's not really meeting any real needs in your life. It's just something you do. It's just like going to the movies or listening to another podcast. The Sunday morning is just one more thing on a list of things to do. It's really not all that important. You could take it or leave it. In fact, during COVID, a whole bunch of people left it. You either have reputation or you have reality. And I believe you know where you are. What describes you? Alive or dead? What describes your faith? Vibrant or trudgery? Passion for Jesus or I'm just getting by? Reality? Truth? Or have you become satisfied with something much less? I believe you know the difference. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness and your kindness and your patience with us that while we were yet sinners, you came and died in our place. You pursued us when we were in our sins. You, you loved us when we were and, and yet, Father, in that grace that we experience and that forgiveness and freedom that we experience, for some reason, we have chosen an easier path, one that is compromising, one that is constantly afraid, one that is wrapped up in a facade and a reputation rather than reality. And Father, the fact is this morning is that for some here today and some watching online, they don't really have you at all. They don't have any authenticity. They've never been changed. And just like this church, the majority of this church was spiritually dead. Maybe that describes someone here this morning, Father, only you know and they know. So, Father, I pray that we would self-examine ourselves this morning where we really stand in the faith or not. I don't want anybody here to be standing before you one day, Lord, and, and giving that resume of reputation and you've given them the dose of reality that separates them from you for all eternity. The choices we make today matter. I pray, Father, it would matter in this moment. We ask it in the powerful and strong name of Christ. Amen. Let's stand together and let's worship. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.